Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to another Wagon Wheel uh, with Jared Kimball here on Spotify Greenroom. Remember, if you want to get involved, uh, we're still doing them on Spotify Greenroom. Um, uh, we might move them to Clubhouse or to Twitter Spaces in the future, but for now, we'll keep them here. So we usually put it up on Instagram or on Twitter that, they are, uh, that they're coming up. I just keep my camera. Sorry if you're watching this on YouTube as well. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the people who support us on Patreon, I suppose. Um, big th- shout out to all of them for supporting us. Um, there's been influx recently. I have no idea why, but, you know, I love each and every one of you, obviously. Um, with Patreon, it allows you to ask the first questions. We'll get to those in a moment. But I just want a big shout out to um, uh, manscaped.com. Uh, if you want to shave your testicles in a more humane way, go to manscaped.com, put in the code REDINCA. And then you can shave away as safely as, as possible, I suppose. Um, trim, maybe is the better term. I don't know. I don't know what the, I, you know, I'm not an expert on this. But you get free worldwide delivery, 20% off. Red Inca, all one word is the code. Uh, also, thanks to Bodyline T-shirts. This is my favorite Bodyline T-shirt. This is probably my favorite T-shirt I own at the moment. WG Grace in a pedalo um, that I'm wearing at the moment. Uh, and I'll just go through um, uh, the Patreon questions. Uh, to start with, through them in some sort of order. As I said, if you want to ask questions first on any of these or, you you know, you can't get your question through because sometimes we run out at the end, the best way to guarantee it is obviously to go to Patreon, support us. Um, I think you need to be on the five pound or over, whatever that works out in your currency level, and then you can ask questions on Patreon. It also gives you, at Patreon, also gives you access to other things like private chats with me, uh, disc, our Discord server, my emailer, um, AMAs, other AMAs, I don't know, lots of things. Uh, Ian says, what an amazing test between India and New Zealand. How much more difficult, easy do you find it being lead commentator as opposed to your normal role? And how differently did you prepare? Uh, yeah, I um, I was commentating on this for TalkSport. If you want to follow the next series, uh, sorry, the next test, we'll be doing uh, the second test as well. Uh, TalkSport asked me to be commentator. So, for those who don't understand how sort of cricket radio works, essentially you have someone who calls the ball. So he says, here's Josh Hazelwood. He comes in, it's short, it's wide, it's cut away. And that just beats Gully and that's four runs. And then you have, um, and then you have the color person who goes, 
yeah, you can't give that kind of width there. You know, that's just that's just the way that Rohit Sharma plays. If you go short and wide against him, he's going to try and get up and under that. Um, he probably didn't get under it as much as he wanted to. So that's the second role. And then the third role is tr- more traditionally is a scorer. Um, but it's probably changed a little bit through myself and Andy Zaltzman, um, even some of the TV people like Mazar and, and, and Laurie. Uh, where there's um, a lot more analysis involved in that. So my role on Cricket Info, oh, sorry, Cricket Info, on TalkSport is not um, a scorer. I don't do any scoring. I do analysis of, okay, well, this is why they might be doing this or this they've done this and this is what they've done in the past. And, you know, almost almost doing it in the same way that I would do it for a team, but live um, and with more jokes. Uh, so in that job, the analysis job, I do a lot of preparation. I really do... Um, I really would do quite a bit of stuff beforehand. Who's good against this kind of bowling? Who's good against that kind of bowling? Uh, you know, what periods of the games do either team struggle? Um, what are the pitches like? All those sorts of very, very, very basic things. And then during the day, I spent most of my day on, with the, you know, on the computer looking up for more information of, well, this guy seems to be playing this good. Has he done this before? Or does he have a good record against this bowler? All those sorts of things. Uh, so that's very different. When I'm doing color commentary, which is the sort of the second chair, which is the guy who, or guy or girl, who describes the shot after it's been played, um, I probably don't do a lot of research only because it's very rare that I come into the games not knowing the teams particularly well. If I don't know the teams very well, then I'll certainly, I will go through and do a lot of research. When I'm doing ball by ball, I'm more working on patterns, really. It's, a, it's really pattern orientated thing it's a little bit weird actually commentating off the tv is a little bit different so when you commentate off um uh, live and you're commentating radio you're actually commentating from when the bowler first picks up the ball um so uh Mornay Morgul half turn at the top of his mark and he comes in and he's going to be bowling to who would he be bowling to uh, david warner and this is back of length slanted across warner and warner leaves it Almost, fe- he almost uh, went at that at one stage with his hands. So you're really taking it from the top of the mark all the way through. So you're looking at the pattern, and you really want to keep it in the, as much as possible the present tense, even even if something's already happened. Um, so that can be quite a hard art. And so that's sort of what you do. So I more try and work on little things uh, with my commentary beforehand. If there are teams I don't know, or there are players I don't know, I do a lot of research. Generally, I don't have a lot in front of me. I'm not very good at reading my notes while I'm commentating. So when I'm doing analysis, I have tons of, I have like all this stuff on the computer and then I have all this stuff um, in front of me on my uh, on a notebook and I, you know, sort of go through that. When I'm doing the color commentary, I try and react to the commentator because I want it to be like a conversation. And when I'm doing actual commentary, I've kind of got all these patterns already uh, made out. So I don't take a lot of notes or do a lot of research, except for I might do something before the game to know who the teams are. These two teams, um, I probably did uh, more stuff on Will Somerville and Ajaz Patel for New Zealand coming in. Uh, oh, Will Young was probably another player I didn't know a lot about. knew a little bit about Tom Bondell. Um, and for India, did they have anyone I wouldn't have known? Well, I already knew about Shreya Sai, so I probably didn't do much research. So, yeah, that's the three different jobs. I've been very lucky, actually, in, in broadcast that – I have the ability to do all three different jobs, which means that I'm not as unemployed um, as I should be. But, yeah, I sort of bounce around between all of those sorts of ones. Uh, Ramna says, how is South Africa able to consistently produce seam bowling all-rounders from Pollock Klusner in the 90s to Pretorius Morris today? Does their coaching set up push cricketers to develop all-round skills? 
It's a really good question. I'm not sure, but it goes way, way back before the 90s. Um, uh, you know, Mike Proctor and, oh, God, I'm forgetting the other one, Clive. Uh, everyone in the comments is going to remember this. Someone should put this in the discussion if they can remember the guy's name. Um, uh, you've got them. Uh, you've got, I suppose you've got Peter Pollock as well. Maybe not quite an all-rounder, but certainly a very good bat. Um, you've got, they had a lot of all-rounders in the 50s and 60s as well, sort of before they became a really good team. Uh Go back, you've got uh, Jimmy Sinclair, missing a couple of others from the early period. So they've always had seam bowling all-rounders in a way that, let's say, other similar kind of cricket cultures like Australia, maybe you would put Zimbabwe in that as well. Um, New Zealand, probably. Uh, New Zealand and England, probably less so, but they they, they certainly have it. Um, but the others certainly haven't had it at their level. I, I can't give you a real good, good answer about this because it's been going on for 100 years and you would think that their system has changed other than it, it might have something to do with their school system. Perhaps you are pushed to be able to do that. Um, they also, if you look at it, they have a lot of bigger batters. You know, we're now we're now in an, in an era of time where batters are bigger. But, you know, in Australia, for instance, you were supposed to be, you know, they wanted smaller batters. Um, you know, I remember even when Tom Moody came through, so many people saying, is he too tall to bat? Um, that's never seemed to be a problem with South Africa. They've, they've backed um, uh, their players. And I wonder if it's maybe just, it's not so much that South Africa are better at this. It might have something to do with the fact that other countries are not pushing it in the same way. Um, uh, there's a really interesting story from the NFL uh, from a couple of years ago where they basically worked out, I, I, I might get the positions wrong, but I think I've got the positions right, that the centre position and the, and the uh, corner position were almost completely, one was almost completely white and one was almost completely black. And they realised that this was happening, Not it wasn't that the NFL teams were inherently racist, but it was almost happening way before then at, at, at a junior level that people were had decided that corners needed to be black and that centres needed to be white. One was an athletic position, which is where they put the black players, and the centre position, which I hope I'm getting the centre right. There's all these NFL fans very angry with me now. But um, I think there was a lot of there, – there was certainly a lot of um, – uh, um, white players because they, that was seen as a thinking position. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. A, obviously there are very athletic white people and there are very smart black people. So that doesn't make sense to begin with. But this fraction, the, the, the division was happening very early on. I always remember back, and, and I've heard this a lot, that, you know, you don't want to be too tall as a batter. That was always something, you know. And if, if you look at it, the sort of players that you're talking about here, so let's have a look who you've put in. Morris, Pretorius, Pollock, Clusen. These are big men. Right, they don't necessarily look like batters, but they do have quite obviously latent batting skill or um, some batting skill. So I wonder if there's just a—it's not so much that they're developing these players, but they're allowing them to bat. And you see this in other sports. We talked about the NFL, but you also see it in basketball. So there's—if you look at there's three really interesting players in the NBA at the moment: uh, 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 Giannis. Uh, Nikola Jokic and Ben Simmons, they're all basically seven-footers, but they all play a very different style to American seven-footers. And the reason is in their countries and their backgrounds, they were allowed to handle the ball and pass the ball and do all these different things. So is it possible that South Africa is seeing big men and still pushing them as batters, whereas perhaps in other cricket cultures, we're like, no, mate, you can bowl. You know, if you can bowl at 85 miles an hour, you know, you can slog a couple at the end. I, I don't know. I'm just guessing 
But it is really interesting that for over 100 years, New, Ze- uh, New Zealand, who we're talking about, South Africa, have had um, bowling, seen bowling all-rounders of that quality as well. It's a great question, Ramnath. Um, it, it would, I'm not even sure that anyone would be able to give you the answer to this, but, but I'd love to see if we could get to the bottom of it. A surf says, watching cricket in the 90s, I remember a lot of memorable ODI tournaments, probably because they were multi-nations, such as the CB series, Sharjah, yeah, yeah, that's very fair. Is that likely to re- return? Uh, no. And I'll tell you why. It's because of the ratings and the crowds at the away game teams. So I think Kerry Packer obviously created it in a different way and he wanted to bring out multiple teams. I think he was afraid that Australian audiences might get bored. People, because that was the most successful one-day cricket ever, people just copied the, the, the plan, right? But over time, it was quite clear that there was a huge drop-off in the ratings and it cost a lot of money to put on, you know, India versus um, New Zealand in Perth for the amount of crowd that you're going to get. Um, these days, you might you could see why countries might try and do it again. It's also a time thing. The series takes longer. Uh, by later, you know, those sorts of series, I think, are probably gone um, for, for a number of different reasons. I just don't think there's enough time in the schedule to be able to do them. But we do have, obviously, things like the Asia Cup. Uh, we might eventually have something similar in, in Africa as well. Um, so you might get something like that. But, uh, you know, the uh, is it the Hadley Chapel Trophy? I hope I've got that name right. Um you know, we're supposed to be what they were supposed to play each other every couple of years, and they can't fit in just playing each other. It's really hard because of the schedules to then add a third team to any of this, as, as you're seeing again and again. Duncan says, I feel like players like Mitchell Johnson had undiagnosed mental illness problems in the early part of his career. Looks like Mitchell worked this out himself and came back to the glorious mustache era. Uh, but I feel like the Aussie team. I think that was a failing of the Aussie team that didn't get more help, a byproduct of toxic, yeah. I think it's, I don't know if he did have undiagnosed mental health issues. I would say that he suffered, and he's all but said this, but he said it without saying it very much, that he had imposter syndrome. I think you get this a lot with people who are very naturally gifted in something physically, they don't feel like they've always done the work. Like, remember, he, he ran away from cricket at one point. And I think that he knew he wasn't as skillful as Ryan Harris or Peter Siddle or, you know, many other bowlers out there. And they would get, some of the Australian bowlers would get very frustrated at him at times because he would ruin the ball because he didn't know how to even maintain the ball correctly um, when he was bowling because, you know, he was doing everything. And I think there was definitely a point at which he 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 struggled Uh I think there were probably mental health things. I don't, again, I don't know if he's come out and said it directly. Um, I'm trying to remember some of it. He gave some really good interviews um, at times. I think that he probably overthought things and that caused him complications. And he probably, rather than just go back and bowl, because that is actually, he was physically gifted to do, there was probably too much going on in his head. On top of all that, there was the pressure of the Barmy Army, the pressure of the Australian fans at times, uh, the pressure of being told by Dennis Lilly that you're a once-in-a-generation player. Where I think the psychology thing comes in, and you're talking about here how you would set up a team to, to help players better, you're talking about the conventional corporate psychologist might be a bit off-putting. So I think that the problem was, I would say this right up until Jonathan Trott. So Mitchell Johnson is in that era, especially in cricket, when we had psych- sports psychology, we had that kind of 80s and 90s style sports psychology, which was really about getting the most out of your physical performance. 
which makes sense, obviously, because that is your job. But I think it breaks people. I don't think that's, you know, I, you might be able to get them through an extra couple of tests. You might be able to get them making more runs. But I think on an emotional level, there's a real problem with doing things in that style. And I and I truly believe that. And I think that was probably the failing of not not just Australian cricket, but I think a few other cricket boards who had psychologists as well, is that they're very sort of, they were very sports psychologists, was I actually think maybe the better thing and what teams, from what I've heard, um, not uh, from in cricket, but also from, you know, listening to other sports, the psychologists who work in sports now are a little bit better at understanding, well, we have to make sure that this person is okay because so many players are work, walking away. And beforehand, they didn't walk away for breaks, did they? They just either performed badly or they, you know, they, they lost their spot on their own. So realistically, keeping the person happy and healthy mentally is really, really important thing. And I think we understand that a lot more now than we might have, well, certainly in Mitchell Johnson's era. Now, um, I, I don't, the, the corporate um, psychologist thing is also a very important thing because uh, you, you have a situation where essentially what they're trying to do is you're trying to get as much out of your player as possible. That's not always going to be the best thing for your player. Sometimes the best thing for your player is not going to be to play. And are a psychologist who are paid by a cricket board compromised there? Um, if you want to go back to the doctors in the NFL for any given Sunday is a very good example of that. Um, there is a, If you're being paid by the cricket team to make sure that this guy's out on the field, there is a compromise there. It, you know, even if you, if you um, are an incredibly moral person, there's always going to be pressure. So it's a really interesting point though, Duncan. Uh, Jimmett says, where did the word Yorker come from? Does it have something to do with Yorkshire? Yeah, um, it's a Yorkshire phrase very early on. Um, I, sorry, I'm not an expert on, the, uh, on, on, the, on when it came about. But, yeah, it was – so Yorkshire has been involved in a lot of phrases, good and bad. Uh, obviously, you know, what we used to call left-arm wrist spinners also came out of Yorkshire. Um, they were very uh, – they had their own words for a lot of – they still do. If, if you talk to, you know, a lot of Yorkshire cricketers, they have like a separate language when it comes to um, talking about cricket that a lot of other people, even in England, don't have, let alone the rest of the world. Uh, but yeah, that is that is where it came from. I know when um, uh, this when when people stop trying to say the left arm wrist spinner phrase, um, a lot of people uh, in Yorkshire were like, "Oh, wait until they find out about Yorkshire." But a Yorker, I don't think, was ever seen as a derogatory term towards people from Yorkshire. It was just a ball that people from Yorkshire bowled in the same way that in Australia, when you bowled outside off stump, it was referred to as the Queensland line. Um, I, as far as I'm aware, there's no derogatory term. Like, I don't think people from Yorkshire are called Yorker as a derogatory term in the same way that, you know, people were called, uh, you know, the, the left arm wrist spinner one certainly was a derogatory term. Ray asks, after watching Marizan Cup, a bowl some incredible overs with killer outswingers, absolutely, how awesome was it to see her destroy her own wife? I, absolutely, that was funny and hilarious and awesome. Uh, got, it got Ray thinking, who's the best outswing bowler of all time or top? or top three if one is too hard. <coughs> it's a really interesting question, Ray. I think I think you probably have to be Richard Hadley. I can't think of anyone who is better. R Richard Hadley, so I kind of had, there were different kinds of um, outswing bowlers. So, for instance, um, Stuart Broad can sometimes swing the ball away from the bat. All right, and there are lots of bowlers who can sometimes swing the ball away from the bat. Josh Hazelwood, I wouldn't call them outswing bowlers. The kind of outswing bowlers I think about are the automatic outswing bowlers, where 
almost every ball, they could swing the ball away from the bat. So if you're looking very modern times, we don't really have many of them. Jimmy Anderson would have been one of the last ones. Uh, Matthew Hoggard was a very good one. Uh, there was some, just a whole host of them out of Sri Lanka at one point. Uh, Wickrama Singer was, uh, was one of my favourites out of Sri Lanka. Uh, who else do we have? Damien Fleming uh, was probably another one. Um, Ray, I know you're from South Africa. I'm trying to think automatic outswing bowlers from South Africa, but they were probably, there were bowlers like Sean, uh, yeah, Alan Donald, Dale Steen, um, Sean Pollock, who could bowl the outswinger but maybe weren't as automatic. Although Sean Pollock and Jarts Chalice were incredible. At it. So maybe that they do fall into that um, mindset. But I just think Richard Hadley is probably the best outswing bowler we've ever had in cricket. I, I feel like you could throw him an orange and he'd work out how to swing the ball away. He obviously had more skills than that, but I think that was his basic skill was that was how he kept you pinned in. Um, and if you look in the generation before him, you know, a lot of bowlers had very good outswingers before him. And it was a lot more common. The, the faster we bowl, the less the ball swings. So uh, as a general rule, it's going to be harder to have swing uh, outswing bowlers um, around anymore. The other interesting thing, because uh, Ray, you're asking about women's cricket as well, is that it seems for whatever reason that in women's cricket, the predominant skill is to swing the ball in. And I've always wondered if that's a biomechanical thing with the, with the fact that women and men are shaped differently, but it's a, a you know, a really good question. Uh, Christopher says, will T20 be a good warm up for sides going into the T20 world cup? or even a franchise tournament, thinking is that they could play two games in the time it takes to play one T20. Both sides get a turn at batting and bowling first, get batters used to playing with intent from the start, good practice of death bowling. So, yes, but there's a very specific reason I think this is the case. One reason that so many people believe that England got very good at white ball cricket, especially one-day white ball cricket, is pro-40 cricket. Taking out those 10 overs made the games a little bit more intense. It meant that you had to score at a slightly quicker rate. It meant the bowlers had to be slightly better at defense or taking wickets um, in that format. And there's a big feeling behind that, that that sort of generation of, if you look at the England cricketers, they're all a lot older. Now, some of that doesn't matter now because T20 cricket's taken so seriously. But I do believe in that sort of, in slightly changing the game. In the, like, I suppose what you're talking about there, Christopher, is heightening the T20 game, aren't you? You know, and that's what T20 T10 game is. It's everything that's going to happen in T20, but a little bit shorter. And as you said, more people um, have various different kinds of experience. I would say that the middle of a T20 game is its own vibe. Um, and so halving the game probably doesn't work as well, but perhaps the hundred is the perfect combination of those two things there. But yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you. I think that's a very good thinking. It'd be interesting to see if teams um, come across that. Chris says, I see some IPL teams are suggesting to end the mega auctions. What are the pros and cons for doing that, assuming that the goal should always be parity across the league and not one or two teams uh, winning forever and if they keep adding expansion teams? Yeah, so the mega auction is there because they can't have, uh, they can't have one team having a great auction and then... Um, running the league for the next few years. The truth is that there are deals done behind the scenes. People are played outside a salary cap. Um, all those sorts of things that happen, which are probably why, you know, Chennai and Mumbai are the most consistent, um, successful teams in this league. So it's a bit, <laughs> the, 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 the um, Punjab uh, owner, 
was it the owner? Or someone involved with Punjab came out and said that they were upset that um, <laughs> they were upset that Cal Raul might have talked to someone else behind this. I mean, he's right, but there's so much going on behind the scenes in the IPL, extra payments and extra benefits for players and all these sorts of things anyway. It's very hard to suddenly pretend that anyone's playing to the rules. But, yeah, the mega auction is there because we're, this is an early league. If we were 20 years in, we wouldn't need the mega auction. If we were 30, uh, you, know, 50, you know, hopefully even by 15 years we might need it, not need it. The expansion teams, I think they're going to have to come up with a better option. The problem is I don't know how you benefit expansion teams in an auction system. I wonder if not the better idea is actually to go to a draft then and give them um, access to hot early draft picks. But I don't think they're going to go away from the auction. So it's really interesting, Chris. But yeah, that's what the, the mega auction, the idea is to make it a flatter model. Um, it's not really worked so far, but um, it's probably better than not doing it, I suppose, <laughs> is the best way of putting it. Uh, thank you to everyone on Patreon. Remember, if you want to ask a question, start off here. Uh, or if you can't get onto any of these chats, become a Patreon member, um, check your tier status, and then uh, you can ask questions. A little bit of grass on the wicket is good, but too much and all hell breaks loose. Not enough and things can go sideways very quick. The same is true of your pubic hair. And you don't have a groundsman who smells like fertilizer telling you what to do. No, you are the curator of your own pubic pitch. So if you're having trouble grooming your pitch, what about Manscaped? They've invented a sleek, well-designed, optimized trimmer that helps you shave your ball. I've used it, and it's incredible. It's good enough to use at Lords. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA, which should be easy to remember because that's the name of this podcast, and you just put that in at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, free worldwide shipping, manscaped.com. The code is REDINCA. I always thought this podcast took balls more seriously than anyone else. Then I tried Manscaped. We've got a bunch in the room. Let's see who we got here. Oh, they got me on mute. Yes, that are not here. No worries. What's your question? So, uh, so my question was, uh, what do you think is the merit for KKR to retain uh, Andrew Russell and Subin Naran, as well as when Varun Chakravarti have thought of uh, a rebuild of sorts? I mean, a fresh slate. Is there any players on the open market that can replace Sun Narayan and Andre Russell? I mean... Is Andrew Russell that a re- replaceable that you uh, risk an injury-prone uh, season? I mean, he pretty much didn't play this whole Yeah, but that can, I, that's going to happen to any bowling all-rounders. They're probably more prone to or, uh, injury than any other cricketer, I would assume. Um, and you can't replace him. Like, what's, what's, the, what's the backup if you don't get Andre Russell? Who's the other Andre Russell in, in world cricket? There isn't one, right? So if you have him, uh, you're making a very bold call that either he's finished which I don't think he is, um, but he might be. Um, or or your, your secondary call is that you can find someone else who can replace him. And there just isn't anything else out there that similar at the moment. I'm trying to think is, am I missing someone? Um, I mean, no one else can score at the rate he scores at. And as a batter, let alone has backup bowling skill. Like he really is completely on his own as a cricketer. Sun on Orion as well. You've got a guy in Sun on Orion who can fill in as a as a permanent sort of pinch hitter, can play all these different kinds of roles for you. You can occasionally open for him when a, there's a good matchup there. He can drift in the in the order. He's not always going to make runs, but when he does make runs again, they're going to be incredibly fast. Um and uh, he's still very, very unhittable. I, again, 
I don't know how you replace those cricketers. Uh, so I don't have a big problem with them doing that. The only thing is, it's whether you do it at the start of the mega auction, which which is a very valid point. But if you don't do that, you're basically starting again from scratch, aren't you? And I'm not sure that that's an ideal situation when you have two players of their talent available to you. Right. So can we expect a video from you or uh, or any content from you regarding your parts of the auction or are you waiting for the other two teams? Yeah, I'm just waiting for all the teams to do it. I will. I mean, I've got I've got the Indian New Zealand test this week, then I've got the Ashes straight away afterwards. So I'll try and fit it in because... Um, India New Zealand test. I'm doing that. I'm doing the um, commentary, and then I'm doing writing and video. So it's just a lot of hours of my day taken up. Um, uh, w- it's actually a lot easier to do stuff during the Ashes um, because uh, I'm just writing and doing video. So those come towards the end of the day anyway. So um, I'll probably take a look at the at the retentions. The retentions is really interesting, um, and the way the different teams have gone. I've, I mean, I've kept an eye on it. I just haven't managed to uh, put it together. But thanks for your question, mate. Keshuv. Yep, I'm here. Hi, Jared. How you doing? What's your question? All good. So my question is uh, regarding New Zealand. So, you know, New Zealand before the WTC, you know, one could understand why they get uh, just two test match series because because of many reasons. But now that they're the number one ranked team, they have uh, won the WTC. Even in this next cycle they the most of their series are two match series once again so the question is kind of twofold a why don't they get more attention from you know the likes of india england and australia where they they also get three match four match series and the second part of the question is if they were to get that longer series do you think they would have it in them to sustain for that long having not played so many uh, such uh, long series in the past because you know, I can only count on my fingers the last time they played a three-match series, let alone four or five. Like, I think once they played in Australia in 2019 and Pakistan in 2018. Other than that, I don't really remember. So, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, the current series right now, the first match got drawn and the second one would be kind of a lottery for them or, or the series they won in England in summer. So, what do you think about that? I mean, there's a lot of different things. To start with, why do you think it matters how many tests you get to play? Like, South Africa didn't play extra tests when they were the best team in the world for, what, seven or eight years. There's no correlation between the amount of tests that you win and the amount of tests that you play, really. The difference is that uh, is really your market, how much your TV market is worth. That's how many tests you get. How much we, how many tickets can you put on, on, on uh, how many bums can you put on seats? plays a small role but this isn't really a uh you know uh other than australia and uh, other than australia and england there really isn't enough money in ticket sales in any of the other test playing nations to worry about that so realistically how many tests you get is based on how much your tv market will pay for it new zealand's not a very big tv market and you know cricket is a popular sport there but it's obviously not the major sport um and so you're only going to get so many people watching it not really, you know, like if you're India, think of the amount of money India is making. Why does why would they add an extra test to this unless they had to? From a cricket perspective, <coughs> sorry, pardon me. From a cricket perspective, yeah, I think it's a shock to the system if they had to go from two tests to four tests and five tests. Uh, how they would go, I don't know. They'd probably struggle for a little while and then work it out would be my guess. Um, uh, yeah, I think their results are probably going to be more random than 
you know, say a team like New Zealand and Sri Lanka, sorry, South Africa and Sri Lanka, who play slightly more tests and slightly longer series. Um, so you would probably, in a two or three year period, have a very good idea of how good a team um, New Zealand or uh, sorry, I keep saying New Zealand, Sri Lanka or West Indies is, whereas New Zealand could just have a bit of a run where, as, as you say, they could draw a couple of test matches, lucky, win win their follow-up ones, win a bunch at home, and their record looks slightly better than it is. I think that's fair. The opposite's also true, though. There were probably periods where the other, you know, they had a better team and the results didn't quite fall in their favour. Whereas if they were playing four and five test match series, even three test match series, uh, we would have a much better idea of how good they were as a team. So I, I think that's all very fair. Do you think they got just probably got lucky with a lot of two test series where they didn't have to prove the sustainability of being a really good team overseas? Uh, it's not that they got lucky. I mean, people don't want to play them. That's the other team's problem. We've got a stupid system. They also don't make a lot of money from test matches at home, so they, they do short series. They weren't doing that to win a World Test Championship because that started well before the World Test Championship. They got lucky. Yeah, I mean, I think they got lucky to make their World Test Championship I've done a whole video, I think, called The Luck of New Zealand Making It. Um, But they set themselves up to be lucky by completely... Brendan McCullum completely changed the way they thought about their international team. And behind the scenes, Cricket New Zealand completely looked at the way... Or New Zealand Cricket, sorry. Completely looked at the way they um, set up everything from pitches to squads to depth charts, uh, all these different things. You know, the both coaches, Mike Hessen first and then Gary Stead, um, completely changed the way they thought about cricket. So if Sri Lanka had had the same amount of luck or West Indies had, had the same amount of luck, they probably don't make it. You need to be in the right position at the right time. And New Zealand were getting absolutely everything out of their cricketers at the right time. And then, yeah, m- more often than not, I- you need to be lucky to get anywhere in sport. I mean, luck plays a part all the time. Uh, if Tim Southey or Neil Wagner had done their knee halfway through the World Test Championship, they probably don't make the final. Right, if uh, Pat Cummins did it, pulled that, pulled his hamstring, um, or you know, uh, or Josh Hazelwood um, uh, during during Australia's uh, World Cup reign, they, they don't win the World Cup. You know, look at England. Would they have five injuries by the end? Everyone probably thought they were the best team coming in. They looked like the best team for, throughout the start of the tournament. They didn't win. Pakistan looked like the better team than even Australia. You know, Marcus Stoinis gets caught at deep mid-wicket and Pakistan's in the final, not not Australia. So, um, there's always luck. Just the last little follow-up on that. As you said, you know, there are a lot of reasons involved why they won't get a, a series, more, a longer series. That can be understandable when teams go to New Zealand, you know, because of the time zone and all. But in a market like India, England and Australia, where test cricket is still seen and you, you saw the Kanpur test, the amount of crowd was there. So, what else do New Zealand have to do apart from being number one, being WTC holders that at least India, England and Australia start giving them longer series from here? They won't. There's no time. There's nothing they can do, really. I mean, maybe over time they'll go from two to test three tests. New Zealand's never going to have four and five test series. There's no time in the schedule to be able to suddenly go, oh, this is a good team, unless you like demote other teams. You would have to, I don't know, they'd have to come out of, what, South Africa probably? I mean, there aren't that many teams who even, who get big test series anymore uh, for for us to find this extra time. And as far as, I mean, the only team I can think of, uh, but even then, uh, this is dictated by the market and the power. New Zealand doesn't have any political power. They don't have a big market. They're not helping India, England and Australia at all. 
So I can't see that's and that's how these boards think. Uh, and if they went on like a West Indies run where like for 10 years they completely changed the way the game was played and they dominated everyone, maybe it starts to happen. But then you're only as good as you're, well, you're only as popular as you are good. Um, the minute they start to fail again, they'll be phased back out, would be my guess. All right. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for your question. All right. Who have we got next here? Anvik, what's your question? Okay. So I've been thinking a lot about history and how, and, and the West Indies. So West Indies is a British creation because of administrative reasons and imperial reasons. And I was wondering from a cricket point of view, how West Indies is, as far as I know, where it's the only like conglomeration of countries that comes together. It's not, just to stop you there, Anvik, it's not even the only conglomeration of countries we have in cricket because um, Ireland, the Irish team is Northern Ireland and the uh, Republic of Ireland. Okay, good. That was my first question. Like, <laughs> are there examples of this? Because uh, I was assuming that probably were. And B, so if this is an accepted form of like creating teams, why can't more associate countries do this? Because there was this debate in football a few years back and it keeps coming back up again. You know, that Belgium, I suppose Belgium, France, yeah. and Netherlands yeah. joined together to create a league. Why couldn't Belgium, France, and Netherlands do that in cricket, for example? Are you talking about a league or a team? In this case, a team, but. Okay. Well, there's political reasons. Yeah, I don't know how much you follow West Indies cricket, but. Having a bunch of different countries together is not ideal when you're actually running the game. There are huge political problems within West Indies cricket and have always been there. And back in the old days, they used to have a, every time you had a um, every time you had a test in a different venue, you would have a different captain because you had to have a local captain. Which means that sometimes people would not only would they captaining because they were white, but they were captaining because their team um, happened to be oh sorry their ground happened to be hosting the test. Um, that. Think about that from um, in a modern day standpoint. It's tough. There's problems within Irish cricket um, as well. Uh, not not as much. The Irish cricket seems to have overcome them. But you know, if you suddenly have no, actually they haven't. I still get I get people from from um, Northern Ireland moaning about the Republic and the other way around at times as well. Um, so that happens. You know, it's bad enough if you have people from Mumbai complain, complaining about Chennai and New South Wales complaining about Victoria. You were talking about two different nations here, so that's the that's the major problem. The other one is that in the amateur era and the earlier era, this made a lot more sense because you know, I mean, you just get together and play cricket. When you start talking about funding models and governments and Olympics, these things get a lot more complicated. Now, it's fine in the West Indies because, and hopefully, will be fine in in Ireland. So, in the West Indies, that the teams will try and qualify for the Olympics and Commonwealth Games on their own. So the bigger islands will, um, and the smaller islands and uh, uh, well, bigger islands in Guyana might, and the smaller islands may not, which is something that will happen. Uh, Ireland will be split up, I believe. I, th- I think this is right, although I have to talk, talk to someone from Irish cricket, so that the Republic of Ireland will play as a team, and players from Northern Ireland will be able to represent the Team GB, which will probably also have teams from Scotland and Wales. Uh, which will be, again, a bit like what you're wanting. Um, so you'll have a one-off, almost like pseudo-English cricket team that isn't really the English cricket team. Um, uh, but again, the pol- the politics and the com- complication of everything I've just said there, the league thing is the more interesting thing for me. I think someone might have asked even last week about this, uh, about why there isn't a league between Ireland, Scotland and Netherlands. Well, they did actually try, uh, try one before, um, I forget what it was called. It was called the North Sea Oil League. 
there's something like someone in the associate probably correct me in the in the thing here below but um uh yeah so i think um i think that that is possibly um what will happen in the future obviously they tried the, uh, the euro league um as well and that p- didn't particularly work but i can see how that is a better way of doing it like if you think about it like namibia zimbabwe kenya uganda i think those are the four better african teams wouldn't they all be better off if they all had two teams in an eight-team league, uh, whether it be T20, first class, one day, whatever? Um, even if it's not their national players, their national players are off doing other stuff. Uh, that would be that would be a much better option. Um, uh, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu is probably another one off the top of my head. I'm probably missing. Sorry? Scandinavia. Well, I mean, Denmark is a perfect example of, uh, you know, Denmark was a very good cricket team, right? And part of the reason I think they probably didn't continue to develop is they probably didn't have other stronger teams around them at the time, right? So that's what this, you know, the the push towards European cricket is that it's not that Europe has ever been, had bad cricketers. It's just that they haven't had enough in a small pool and maybe we can get towards that. So I think leagues makes a lot more sense. I think, you know, USA, Canada, even the West Indies as a, would be much better as one league. You don't need a Canadian, you, you you need Canadian domestic T20, you need American domestic T20, and you need West Indian domestic T20. But if you really want to develop all your players, what you really want is four teams from the West Indies, two teams from the USA, and two teams from Canada, right? That would be, a, with overseas players sprinkled in, would be a really good league. I honestly think that, you know, you don't need, Sri Lanka don't need a league, and Bangladesh don't need a league. Like, literally, they should get together with Pakistan and have, like, the non-Asian, uh, sorry, non-Indian, Asian T20 competition. Um, and you still have a really strong domestic structure under that so that, you know, you're still finding your players. Everyone could do this, but it's the politics of it really and the finances that usually dictate why we don't have this. Um, I would say the last time we really had this sort of thinking was probably 1996 when PILCOM was around, the Pakistan-India-Lanka committee to run the 1996 World Cup. Um, outside of that, I, don't, I just don't think everyone's trying to screw each other over at these places right like like for instance a really obvious one would be ireland and scotland getting together right like geographically they hate each other it would be the worst idea ever right but for you and me we'd be like do you know what you look at the strength of irish cricket and you look at the strengths of scottish cricket they'd have a really good team if they went together um and they've got you know different resources and different backgrounds and yeah you know, all these different things it'd be great you couldn't. I couldn't even imagine imagine getting, them getting in the room together. So how the hell are we going to get Nepal and Oman together? I don't know why Nepal and Oman. They're not particularly close, but I went with those two. So I think that's the reason. Okay, I'm going to leave you there because there's a lot of people waiting. Yeah, I figured politics was the reason. I was just wondering if there were other ones of the West Indies model. Okay. No worries. Cheers, mate. Bye. Neil Rem says hello. Well, hello. Um, Daya says, uh, watch Jared's episode on Spotify, Double Century Podcast. I talk about the history of West Indies cricket there. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, the history of West Indies cricket is very interesting. If anyone else has any questions, I don't think anyone else has got their hand up at the moment or I can't see any, because uh, so that's probably more to do with, um, <laughs> that's probably got more to do with uh, the uh, Android issues. But um, if you do have a question and you want to ask, uh, feel free to put your hand up. But yeah. I mean, West Indies, I don't think it could happen again today. That is not to say that you wouldn't have a situation where two different cricket boards might merge together or you might I might have a situation a bit more like, I'm trying to think of one, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh, 
where they might stay together as a team even after their nations. But I don't think that would ever happen again. I mean, even uh, the, the best ex- example of this is even Wales wants to leave, doesn't, you know, there are people within Wales who want the Welsh team to be an independent team. It's not a hugely strong push at the moment, but there are certainly people in Wales who believe that. Um, so there's another team that I forgot that is a combination team, Wales and England, the English and Welsh cricket board, as you never hear it talked about. Uh, Fahan. Yeah. My question is related to Ashes. Okay. So as far as I can see that they will go with Johnny Besto over Holly Pope. Right. It feels like that. So basically it's a personal like likeness, I would say, because uh, the first time I saw Holly Pope play, I thought that maybe I'll see him play for 10 years. Okay. Just look like, like uh, before that, maybe I had such experience with Babaraz and we can see that, that he's been like that. I don't understand the logic why they are still going with Johnny Besto. And I know he has a form issue, uh, Oli Pope. But don't you think Australia is the place that he should play? Maybe in England, I get it. He has to work something. But what he can do more, he does, I think, average more than 50 in the domestic. There. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to need to stop you there because I don't know how much you know about Oli Pope. But I've probably done more research on him than anyone else ever. Um, Oli Pope doesn't play spin particularly well. I think I picked it very early on that he struggled against spin and that he would struggle against it in the test match game. There wasn't a huge amount of data in his first class stats to show that, but it was the he, he just scored at a, a very slow rate in first class cricket. And if you're scoring against domestic spinners very slowly, that's a real red flag for when, if you're especially if you're a Western player going um, uh, to face top quality spin. I don't think that's a huge problem here because um, he's only going to face Nathan Lyon, so it's not quite the same, but it is there. The other thing with Oli Pope is you talk about his huge first-class record. Uh, you have to have a look at what he averages at the Oval compared to everywhere else, which is ridiculous. Uh, no one player has ever averaged, you know, had such a ridiculous disparity over a long period of time between their average at their home ground and everywhere else. I can't remember what it is, but it's well over 80. It might be 100. I should remember this. Yeah, near uh, 90. It's near 90, I think. So that is huge. We saw with Shreya Sai. That doesn't mean everything. Shreya Sire, although Shreya Sire's is not as big, but I think Shreya Sire's was 63 in Mumbai and, and 44 away from Mumbai in his first-class career. But it's something that you've got to factor in. I'm not too worried about form. Um, I, I would I would think that Oli Pope probably plays in Australia at one stage if England are struggling. Uh, they probably just believe that Besto is more used to it. Um, and is available, you know, is, is going to be more more strong. But but you're also you're making an assumption that that's go- that's going to happen. We obviously don't know exactly how the team is going to be. But I would have thought, all things considered, that Ollie Pope's best chance of making runs in Test cricket at the moment are probably going to be South Africa, Australia, and England. Uh, so it would be an odd decision if they didn't keep him in for that reason, unless they just think that you know Besto is the more experienced player and you know can handle the conditions better and is is better suited to the bowling lineups. But Besto goes out LBW a lot, and I really think that Pat Cummins is not going to bowl a ball that doesn't hit the stumps to him. Um, and uh, Besto is going to get bowled in LBW a lot in Australia. Um, I could be wrong, but I think there's a technical flaw there that he can't overcome and that those bowlers are too good. So if they do go that way, Aldi Pope might come in you know, shortly after anyway. Okay. Do you think that uh, when he came to India and what Ashwin did with him, maybe that's playing on his mind? No, I mean, he's not going to be facing him. He's not going to be facing Ashwin 
um, over there. I just think that he doesn't face spin particularly well. I don't think he did brilliantly in Sri Lanka either. I don't think he has the ability to rotate the strike very well against spin, which means he, against good spinners, which Nathan Lyon is, he gets trapped at one end a lot. And if he gets trapped at one end a lot, if you get trapped at one end a lot against Harath or Lyon or Ashwin, um, those sorts of bowlers, that's carnage in test cricket. That's why, even though his record was good against first-class spinners, that's why I thought he would struggle in test cricket. So far, that has come through. He's incredibly talented, though. He may change that and he may develop it, but that is the, the problem I had within his game looking at it so far. Kyle's here. Hey, Kyle. Hi, Jared. I just had a quick question about the comparative strength of T20 leagues. Obviously, the IPL is considered the, the top, top league, mm-hmm. but uh, it's kind of unique. Well, I guess with soccer or football that there are other top leagues, but, you know, how would you rank the rest of the leagues in the world as far as quality of play? Or, well, how would you rank leagues? Like, what are the metrics? What was the criteria for what you think is a strong team? Yeah, so... I haven't done as much research in this as some other people have, but the, the easiest way is that we're very lucky that the same players travel around in circles to cricket, <laughs> so we can kind of compare players um, in that way. But yeah, the IPL is the best league. There are some analysts who believe the PSL is not far behind at all. Um, Pakistan's play in the World Cup might might even strengthen that idea more. Hundreds a bit too early to tell. So usually, uh, it's. Of recent times, it's been the IPL and the PSL have been seen as the top two. I think the BPL, um, not BPL, sorry, the um, uh, Big Bash League was seen as third. But I think a lot of people now think that the Caribbean Premier League has gone beyond that. So you probably have um, IPL, PSL, CPL. um, And then you've probably got, I suppose, the 100 Big Bash um, are probably in that next tier of league then you probably had the um the um, manzani is it manzani manzani i should always forget that name um in south africa um new zealand um sri lanka and uh bangladesh has has slipped back quite a bit although bangladesh probably used to be around the four or five best late uh, one and the blast is probably in there as well i'll probably put the blast in that second tier even though england have another competition the blast is still strong enough with the amount of players and how they travel and everything. So, yeah, you're looking at you're looking at how the players who play in those leagues translate to other leagues, which is we're probably more lucky that we can do that than other sports. I would say that like the difference between the NBA and the Spanish league or even if you want to do the NBA and the Euro league is probably a lot bigger than the difference between the IPL and any other league. Um, that's partly just because the IPL hasn't allowed it for fully international players to come in. Um, which is a big difference, uh, you know. As, as more, even if we say that the Indian cricketers are more talented in general, and there's more of them, there's still, you know, a, a small jump between those. Eventually, what you would expect to see is the IPL to be absolutely, by far and away, the best league, and then probably have, you know, Pakistan um, and the hundred maybe as second and third, um, and then the Big Bash and CPL sort of fighting it out um, beyond that. Uh, but yeah, it's. It's a bit subjective. Um, I'm trying to think. We kind of have to do it as analysts a little bit because, you know, there are things you need to know about all the different leagues going in. Uh, And you also, probably what's better for the analyst to know is how players from certain backgrounds translate in that league, if that makes sense. So how a South African will do 
South African with good numbers is likely to do in the CPL or the PSL. That's probably more what we're looking at. Does that make sense, mate? Yeah, this came about from an Australian on Twitter telling me the uh, Big Bash was clearly the second best league in the world. <laughs> you had <laughs> not, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's not even that good a league. I mean, it's the PSL absolutely shits on the Big Bash. Uh, they have more overseas players. The, you know, the fact that role players from Pakistan seem to come over and dominate the Big Bash tells you where it is. It doesn't even have its major players. It's a terrible league, realistically. It's just that the quality of Australian cricket is good enough that it's there and thereabouts. But no, it's not. It's certainly not in the top three leagues. I think it has been at times. I think it was certainly better than the CPL for a while, but not anymore. Do you see, because we talked a little bit IPL expansion, you see other league expanding or is it kind of staying in the same, um, you know, small pop-up format? No, I think the 100 and the, and the PSL probably make the most sense to expand as well. Big Bash is a tough one to expand because they did their expansion at the start. And where do you put the other teams? You know, they can't really put a team in Geelong now. Do they put a team in North Tasmania? There's probably not enough money there. You know, do they have one in, in North Queensland? That makes the travel a little bit tougher. You know, the locations are a little bit trickier. Maybe the Gold Coast is an obvious one, I would think, um, going forward. But yeah, it's uh, although the Gold Coast is a bit tricky too because I suppose it's technically two different states um, uh, depending on where you put the team and, and how you organise it and fund it and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, I would have thought the PSL is probably the most next most likely and then the 100, I could see how they might try and expand that a little bit. There's no reason why you couldn't have three teams in, in, in London maybe and maybe two teams in Manchester and eventually maybe another team up north as well and um, I think they could do that, but I, we're a long way away from the 100 worrying about that. Uh, what the CPL wanted to do to expand was wanted to go to the US, but now we have Major League Cricket in the US and won't be able to do that. So I can't see how that can expand. Um, there are leagues that can get bigger. I think Manzanzi was an accidental tournament that can get a little bit bigger. The Sri Lankan League, if that's run properly, can get a little bit bigger. Uh, Bangladesh, I've just done a whole podcast on Bangladesh. Uh, I can't see them expanding in the, in the future. Okay, thank you. Thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah, you there? Yeah, hi, Jared. Hope you're doing well. I'm, I am. How can I help you? Yeah, so back to the Rahane Shreyas question. Uh, know your view on this. So I can remember four innings that Rahane has played in the past year, like his MCG 100, knock on the England store to India, uh, mm-hmm. knock on India store to England, and uh, WTC final. Like those are the four knocks I can remember Rahane playing of like some impact and Shreyas has played two impactful knocks in his first match so like what do you do now well I think if they're going to drop someone and I haven't seen the news so uh, uh, forgive me they haven't let out what they've decided okay good good well by the time this podcast is out the test match will be on anyway so we're screwed there um, but I would have thought it made the most sense to drop Rahane and keep Shreyas Iyer in um, because Australia's eye is probably not going to bat at first drop. The problem, though, that I don't think people quite understand is that Rahane is not really – this is – India sort of created their own problem here at a certain point in that we know that Akshar Patel isn't going to play outside of Asia probably ever unless there's injuries or unless there's retirements perhaps. And so they've decided that they have a ball – and Shadul Taku the opposite, right? They're probably not going to bowl in, play inside Asia, right? And we're all happy with that. Well, Rahane really has been a specialist overseas batter for India. His his ability is to face the fastball. That's what he's in the side for. That's his that's his thing. 
um, even if that's weakened over the last, you know, a couple of years, that's why he's there. At home, Shreya Sire coming in for him is not going to weaken the side um, and it's not going to cause any problems. And Shreya Sire might still go on to be a very good player. As I said, his numbers are remarkably similar to what a young Rahane's numbers were. And we know that Rahane at his best had a brilliant couple of years, even if he struggled over the last few. The problem is, though, that at this stage, Shreya Sire is a specialist, not a specialist, but a lot of his skill comes in playing spinners. And so you're literally replacing a player who's very good for playing quick bowling with a player who's very good for replacing uh, spin bowling. The big problem in world cricket at the moment is no one can play um, pace bowling um, because the pace bowlers have all improved um, skill-wise and pitch-wise and all these different factors. So long-term, that's really tricky. Short-term, I don't think it's particularly tricky. You say to Rahane, look, you know, you're not in our best five batters in Asia at the moment. Um, thanks for captaining the last game. We'll probably still take you on our next tour um, unless he wants to retire or, or, or move on himself. Um, and it makes sense. The bigger, But the bigger problem isn't Rahane. <laughs> People are obviously, it, the bigger problem is that number three, number four, number five are not making runs. Um, that's the real issue, I think, is that, it, you know, and, and it ends up being a scapegoat issue for the person who's averaging the worst or is the least popular or what, or however this works. What, and I've seen you see this in other situations. When Australia stopped making runs 2010, 2011, they had three players who were over 33, I think. They had Simon Kanich, Mike Hussey, and Ricky Ponting. And so there was this whole thing of, ah, oh, the old guys can't make any runs anymore. We're going to have to drop one of them. And so they dropped Kanich because he was kind of the least famous of the three and, the, you know, the least um, fated of the three. Kadish was the one in the best form at that point and probably looked like he could go on to play for a couple more years. Ricky Ponting was clearly finished. And Mike Hussey was, had some good years, had some bad years at, at the end, played some very good cricket and, and not as much. But Kadish was the one who looked like he was okay. And you, you see what, what happens is someone ends up being made a sacrificial lamb. I think it's quite important to remember that I think India in general are struggling to make runs. Um, and the issue is probably slight, uh, you know, far more dramatic than just Rahane. This might have something to do with the kind of pitches that they're playing on. Um, obviously, the pace playing pandemic all is playing a part of this, especially in someone like Rahane. If your main skill is playing pace bowling, and playing pace bowling is really tough at the moment, you know, it's not ideal. But but yeah, I think in in the short term, I have absolutely no problem with Shreya Sire coming in. I think he proved uh, his metal. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. But I also don't think that that is that kind of pitch is kind of why Rahane is in the side, which is why they've kind of painted themselves into a corner by picking him all the time when his main skill, and we do this with batters all the time. We pick batters and they have to go everywhere. And then we make bowlers into specialist bowlers all the time. It doesn't make any sense realistically when you do it, but they've painted themselves into a bit of a weird corner there. Does that make sense? I thought India was picking Rahane because uh, he was a part of the leadership group. Uh, like, No, I don't. I don't think so. I think he's the same. If you have a look at it, he's got. Uh, when you look at their batting averages against pace outside of Asia, uh, it's like him and Coley. Like obviously, Rohit's come on quite well recently, but no, they're picking him because he can play pace bowling, and he's a brilliant player of pace bowling. I think we've seen it, even when the ball's darting around. His average in the past year has been uh, like he's averaging nineteen. Yeah, like uh, for India, the. Well, for India, I guess a stat there was that uh, anyone who has made about 4,000 runs, he has the lowest average of all of them. I mean, yes, you can drop a bit in form, but you can't go that. Well, firstly, th- th- I've seen a lot of bullshit stats about Rahane. And the last one you mentioned is kind of the same. 
How many of those other players played in eras where the Indian pitchers were ragging sideways, right? And all the and overseas and overseas or seam bowls all around the world were taking wickets out of their asses, right? You got to be a little bit more realistic when you look at these things, right? It's like that's like when people look at WG Grace's test average and go, "Oh, he must have been shit." It's like, well, he was about eighty by the time he started playing test match cricket, and the pitches were, you know, um, were unrolled pitches. Sorry, un- uncovered pitches with pieces of cow shit in the middle of them, right? You have to factor in the era that these players are playing in. Um, so, so a lot of those stats are nonsensical. Um, I mean, it, Rahane, when the batting pitches were great, Rahane was making runs everywhere and looked like an absolute world-class player. No one can really deny that, right? When it's got tougher batting, he's really struggled and he probably went into a form dip just before then as well, but he's not in the side just because of the leadership concerns. They genuinely think he's a good player and he fits a role in that team that the other players don't do. Pajara's not a particularly good player of pace away from Asia, right? We all know that. He hangs in there, and he's, ver- he's very handy in what he does. But no one, you know, he's not a specialist. He doesn't make runs for Yorkshire, does he? Whereas we've seen Rahane make runs on absolutely on wickets that other Indian batters cannot make runs on, right? That is why he was in the team, and that's why they're not, they're not in any rush to get rid of him. Also, on top of that, they haven't prepared Shreyas Iyer to play cricket in Australia and England and New Zealand and South Africa because... That's that's it, the point I agree on. I, yeah. Pujara could have been told to sit out for a few matches and let someone else come in till he figures, I mean, if they want. That's, that's also the other problem, right? Which is, it goes back to what we were talking about before with the sort of um, the specialist bowlers angle, right? It's like... We think we still got this thing in cricket where dropping someone means they never come back, right? That's not the case. There are you might you want to play for specific conditions. You might just be able to say to a player, "Look, we're going to be able to carry this team for a little while. You've got a technical flaw here." Like the best thing that Australia, I don't I don't know what the conversation was with Australia and Travis Head, and you, but Johnny Bairstow could have been in this conversation as well. You go to those players and you go, "Look, this is going to look like you're being dropped, right?" Essentially, we're not dropping you. What we need you to do now is we can carry you for a year and a half, two years without you in the team, right? What we need you to be able to do is fix this technical flaw within your game or go and find form or get your confidence back, whatever it needs to, whatever the problem is with that particular player. We've never set cricket teams up to have that kind of flexible thinking especially when it comes to batters, right? And so we end up in this situation where batters end up digging themselves more and more into a hole. Pajara and Rahane are both in that situation. But you see this in every cricket team in the world. The only reason we're talking about these two is because everyone wants to talk about the Indian batting lineup at all times, right? No matter, even when the, it's not the batting uh, lineup's fault, we still talk about the batting lineup's fault when it comes to Indian cricket, which is the opposite of every other cricket culture, really. Um, and so you, you get in these, in these loops, but realistically... The the difference between Rahane and Shreyas Iyer is that they both come from very similar backgrounds and have very similar numbers. And Rahane went out and became a different player when he got to international level. That's why Kohli and Shastri and maybe Raul Dravid want him in the side because they're looking at this going, this is a guy we can trust in a situation. We know exactly what he does for our team and we're willing to back him. Most often, more often than not, that's what, selectors and coaches and players and senior players do. They back other grizzled veterans. When Gareth Batty was asked this question on TalkSport, he said he wouldn't have dropped Pajara or Rahane no matter how many runs I made, right? They trust senior players. 
who understand things, who've been around, who, who get the system over young players who play good in one particular game or have good first-class records, right? That is a thing that is very common in all sports, not, let alone cricket. And that's because you can't get, you can't get Shreyas Iyer to Rahane's level, even if he's a better bat. And the numbers suggest that at the very least he's similar. But even if he's a better bat than Rahane, he's still going to have to learn what it's like to go to South Africa. Go back to the question we had before about Oli Pope. It's exactly the same thing, right? It's exactly the same thing. I got right? edge uh, in the start of his innings and if, uh, I guess, first or second slip would have been there, he would have been out on zero. And I don't think anybody would have been having this conversation about dropping Rahane. I just think that because Shreyas played well in the second innings, that uh, second innings too, that everybody is talking about dropping Rahane, maybe not like completely forcing him into retirement, but just for a while because everybody is just thinking that uh, Rahane at this point of time isn't looking like making runs and it's the word that's the problem, right? Because what you've just said, and you see this all the time, Mitchell Johnson in 2010-11 Ashes was rotated out of the team and he said, I got dropped. And Mushfika Rahim said a similar thing recently when they weren't taking him on a tour and he said I, he got dropped. It's the wrong word, right? Like, we, it's such a negative word. Realistically, you go to Rahane and you go, we don't need you in India anymore, my man. We don't need you here. This is You were never in the team for India. For whatever reason, you haven't played spin brilliantly at test match level. We can cover you. We can find 25 people who could probably average what you average against spin in, in India. We don't need you here. But we're going to need you on our next tour until these young guys are experienced and they feel comfortable and whatever. We might not need you to play. We might need you as the next batter in, right? And then you keep doing situations like that and then eventually you say to him, we don't need you anymore. Thanks for coming. Or you say to him, actually, we now do need you again. You're looking great in the nets. Can you come back in? That's how a professional sports team should run, right? You, you, you only have about three or four undroppable players. Everyone else basically fills a role in different situations. And we don't think about that in cricket. The, the 11 is so sacrosanct. And here's what my favorite stat about test cricket, which I think Kartike Adate came up with a couple of years ago, which is we've only ever once had a team play the same 11 in uh, 11 or 12 straight tests, it's 12 tests. So 11, 11 men playing in a test match. I don't think, I'm not sure if the women are slightly different, but 11 men in a test match have only ever played a maximum of 12 tests. So the West Indies did it in the late 80s, early 90s, I think. So none of those great Australian teams had the same 11 for more than 11 tests. That tells you the churn and the difference. But instead of embracing it, everyone's fighting to stay in these sides um, and the selectors are so worried about dropping anyone. Well, realistically, it should be, well, if Sean Marsh is absolutely brilliant at playing, at batting against um, spin in Asia and the other Australians aren't, then he plays all the Asian tests. But you, maybe he doesn't need to bat um, at home as much, right? And if he earns the right to have a go at batting at home, you try him. If it fails, you, you take him back to Asia. And for 10 years, he becomes your Asian batter. There's no reason why players can't do this. <laughs> we just don't set it up. And it's all about, we've got to drop this guy. And it's not about dropping. You, you should be looking at any test team should be from a squad of about 20 to 25 players at any time. And there should be a natural flow between those, unless you're just a very weak team and you only have 14 or 15 players to pick from. Do you think it's realistic because, uh, like, there have been... Of course it's realistic. Of course you could do this. You just have to think about things differently. 
right? It's just we we have convinced ourselves that the 11 is such an important thing in cricket, whereas other teams understand it. You watch basketball, right? There are whole games where guys, really good players, don't come off the bench. Starters sometimes go onto the bench and don't play for games because there's a bad matchup, right? Other sports do this all the time. It's a normal part of sport. You only have a handful of players who are undroppable at any one time, ever, right? And if you're lucky, you have a core of about six, seven, eight players who are going to play in your next 10 test matches at most. Everyone else should be flexible and fluid. And it's stupid that we don't believe that in cricket, and we never have. Because cricket has proven to us that it is even more. It needs to be more fluid than basketball or football. Yeah, I just mentioned that because like uh, there have been players who have been like uh, Mudlevic and some other players who have come out and said that they did not feel really comfortable with the team management not trusting them completely. Of course, but that's because of this system to begin with, right? We have already created this system where people think they have to be in the eleven. If you change the way that you talk about the game, if you encourage the media to, and say to them, this is how we're going to start talking about the game, when you talk about dropped, we're not interested in that phrase anymore. We're not interested in using that phrase, not because players won't get dropped, because players will get dropped, but that's not how we're thinking about things. This player is going to play in this series. Keaton Jennings is going to play in Asia. Right, Those are the sorts of things that teams are going to have to start looking at because that's how the game is actually played and we know that because people get dropped all the time. The amount of players who have lost entire test careers because they've been bad against one particular bowler matchup or one particular you know batting matchup or whatever it is or a pitch or conditions or ex- whatever and, we, and a team's lost a hugely talented player. You don't throw away players of Pajara and Rahane's talent. You learn how to manage the system better, especially in India where they're going to have so many great players coming through over the next 20 years. You you can't, you've got to develop players better. And that includes Shreyas Iyer not playing enough overseas by the age of 24. And that includes the treatment of Rahane and Pajara. This is all part of the same thing. Uh, Gregory. Gregory. Sorry, I said that. Yeah, hey, I didn't mean to say that weird. How you doing? What's your question? Yeah, so I saw this stat recently that connected uh, strike rates and uh, runs uh, at averages. So the stat was that in South Africa, fastest-scoring players uh, generally did better. Is there any validity to this fact? And how do this uh, strike rate and averages play out in other venues? Uh, I haven't seen that stat, so I find it very hard to commentate on. Is it, this is obviously Red Bull cricket you're talking about. Yeah, I think it was in uh, Abhishek Mukherjee's book. Uh, he talked about the history of South African cricket. And um, yeah. I was thinking about this with regard to you made a video about Pujara, right? About how even though he bats slow, it's okay. Like, Yeah, I think, I, I can't remember if I was asked this on a Q&A recently or I, did, or I wrote about it or something, but strike rates in, in Red Bull cricket and first class cricket are one of the most overrated things ever because... Most people strike between a strike rate of 40 and 60. There are, in test cricket at the moment, I think there are five people that are significantly over a strike rate of 60. So Quentin DeCott, Conley Grandhomme, David Warner. Um, I can't think of the other couple, um, if there are any, or just, you know. Um, Josh Butler was brought into the side to, you know, revolutionize England's batting and he, bats, he scores slower than uh, Kane Williamson does. And that happens again and again because it's really hard to consistently score quickly in Test match cricket. There are players like um, uh, I, I spent a lot of time with Matt Pryor. Matt Pryor, and you could probably put KP in this. Part of their game is scoring quickly 
to overcome their pro- the problems within their batting. I th- I'm trying to remember. I think Matt Pryor told me that he knew he was good enough at test cricket to face like 60 or 70 balls in an innings. After that, he, f- he didn't think he could do much more than that. So he was like, oh, I have to maximize those 50 or 60, oh, sorry, 60 or 70 balls. I might be re- misremembering Matt's numbers. Um, and you see that a lot. So there are, there, well, not a lot. You see that with certain players. But the vast majority of players have a handful of shots and they score. And they score slower in test cricket because we know more about them in test cricket. It's easy to score fast in first-class cricket because you're only going up against the same bowler once every three months, right? In a test match, you're going up against them game after game after game. There's heaps of video footage. There's heaps of analysis done now, especially. People talk a lot more. Um, there's more preparation for each series than there is for a first-class game. So you just don't bowl to someone's strengths. So I'm very uninterested in someone's strike rate unless they're probably over the 70 mark. That's about the point where you can really... If someone's consistently scoring at a strike rate over... Sorry, pardon me, everyone. If someone's consistently striking over a strike rate of 70, that that's a bit more dynamic. Uh, that's a bit more... With the ability... That can put pressure on the bowling team that might change fielding patterns that might change um you know uh the way the bowlers are used that might change the direction of the game in a very quick way more often than not the strike rate between of 55 or 40 doesn't matter we obsess over the guy who strikes at 40 it's not you know if if it's under 30 (laughs) consistently and throughout a whole innings unless you are dom sibley or um pajara um because they are different it, there's a problem. Most batters, if they're scoring really slow, are struggling. Most batters who are scoring quicker are doing well. Like, it's not rocket science. And most people are trying to do well um, and, you know, are trying to score quicker and they can't. Pajara and Sibley are slightly different. They are players who their strike rates do not dictate their, uh, how how soon they might go out, which is not the case with most batters, as I just said. So you, there are occasionally players like that. I think Brathwaite might be another one of those as well. Whereas more often than not, if a player is scoring a strike rate of 60 or 70, probably because they're in pretty good form and they're seeing the ball well and they're feeling comfortable, and if they're striking a strike rate of 20 or 30, they're probably going to go out soon because they're really struggling to, to, to get away. So I don't really, I'm not too worried about international things. I probably, it's probably more an interesting thing on, on particular players. But realistically, being that we almost have no draws anymore, um, strike rates just don't really affect things that much. Um, I think Steve Waugh got, got in everyone's heads. But if you have a look at the strike rates, even Australia didn't score anywhere near as quick as we remember. It's just that the over rates were probably a little bit slower as well. Uh, sorry, a little bit faster in those days. Yeah, and uh, this is uh, related to that. Does, you know, the idea of blunting an attack by just, you know, blocking one. And does that work, like, you know, facing more... Because uh, that was yes. the thing that in, in in the Australia series it was an exception because they played the uh, the same bowlers, right? Otherwise, in a long series, does it work? Like if they're to rotate them? No, it always it definitely works. You want them to rotate, don't you? Don't you want? Them? I mean, you want them to not use their best bowlers all the way through a series. So if you can do that, you're ahead of the game. Or you want them to use their best bowlers and them for them to be tied. If you have even a three-test series, certainly a four-test series and definitely a five-test series, the more balls you can take out of the attack early on, the better. The more you can tie them, just works for you. Unless the team has a genuine five or six bowling options. But even then, we've seen England over-bowl Jimmy Anderson at times just to try and win a test. Uh, 
England's, England rose to number one in the world by basically following the Moneyball Oakland A strategy, which was our top three will all block the shit out of it and tire out the bowlers, and then we'll attack with four, five, six, and seven. And, and that is how we will win the games. It, didn't, it didn't, doesn't quite work as well for Asia, but in the rest of the world, that's a brilliant strategy. And if you can have three batters of the, the ability of Strauss, Cook, and Trot, and they're all in form, that's tough for bowlers. That's a lot of bowling at blokes who are not making mistakes. Um, and it doesn't really matter how slow they're scoring. If, if Trot and Cook can take 200 balls out of an innings, um, it means by the time your number four, number five, and number six come in, even if the score's only 80, um, you know, the, the main strike seamers are in their second or third spells. You know, that's ideal. And if you do that every test, suddenly it's a huge advantage. No, um, tiring out bowlers, I don't know how it went out of fashion. I don't know if it was an Australian, you know, part of the Australian cricket thing. Um, but it's an absolute tactic that you should do. And it's why... The 10 11 Ashes, Mitchell Johnson didn't play in that next test after England blocked him out. We're already seeing teams rotating their bowlers. That's perfect. You, you know, if you can keep Mitchell, um, 10 11 Ashes, Mitchell Johnson get, uh, gets smashed everywhere and gets tired in that first test. They rest him, although he thought he was dropped, as we were talking about before. He misses Adelaide. He comes back for Perth and he wins the test in Perth, right? They kept Mitchell Johnson out of a test match. It's good, isn't it? Isn't that what you want to be able to do? If you can get Pat Cummins or Josh Hazelwood out of a test match, you know, if you can get Jasper Boomer out of a test match, if you can get Rabada out of a test match, I, I say do it. And if you can't get him out of a test match, do what you did to Mitchell Stark as well. Make him bloody tired. Yeah, thanks, Jared. And also, I really enjoyed your uh, commentary for the first test. Yeah, so thanks. No worries. Thanks for the call. I've got time for one last one. Baska, you there? Hey, Jared. Yeah, so this is uh, taking this uh, strike rate uh, discussion uh, forward. So the thing is that I was watching the test match uh, on TalkSport also for, and I saw that both Batty and uh, Hamishan were criticizing uh, Tom Blundell innings. And, uh, you know, so the thing is that he made the 13 of 93. And I know that you talked about the players who have got a legend 30 strike rate, like Pujara, Sibley, Bradford. They are all at top of the order and they are actually tiring them out. But what I was thinking was that if you're at number six, seven, and I, clearly Blundell, he, he could not score the runs. And number two, I was thinking that in DHC also, he was playing at a draw. So do you think that at if your batting is six and seven and with that strike rate, I think the criticism was not fair. And, uh, but do you think that the role is different and it was Batty and Hamilton right in criticizing him playing so slowly in the first, first, second innings of the match? I think what they were saying, so if, if he came in, and he had batters at the other end. You've got absolutely no problem with him doing that. And he's trying to shore up an end and make sure they don't lose any more wickets. Let's because they'd lost a couple of wickets, right? That is a that is a fine and normal tactic. The problem was that he continued to bat that way for a very long time and he put no pressure back on India and he made the he allowed the bowlers to, to, to basically to, to continue bowling to him until they got him out. I don't think it's a I don't think he did it on purpose, though. Having a look at how he played in both innings, I think that might just be how Tom Blundell is going to have to play in Asia when the conditions are in in the favour of good spin bowlers, right? Um, so you've got to remember that Batty and Harmison hadn't seen him that much before. I think Harmy might have seen one of his innings before. Um, you know, he's not the most well-known cricketer unless you followed New Zealand cricket sort of before um, BJ or when BJ Watling was not fit or, you know, uh, the, the various times when that has happened. But 
but essentially, um, uh, you know, he's got, I think his strike rate's around 40. So we're not, no one was expecting him to come out and blast the ball, but he allowed very good bowlers to bowl ball after ball after ball to him. And I don't think he's a Sibley or Pajara type player. At a certain point, he had to do that. Also, if you're batting at six and seven and you're in with the tail, there is a feeling that you should you should be do- doing the heavy lifting. You shouldn't be making Kyle Jameson play the the, the expansive shots, right? Um, I'm not saying obviously Jameson's a more attacking player, but what he should have been doing is maybe if you if you look at the, now, obviously Shreysai is a much better player of um, spin bowling than Blundell, so this is a bit unfair, but. If you look at what Shreyas I did throughout that middle of that innings, when he, in the second innings when he was batting with Ashwin, and who did he bat with after Ashwin? Why am I forgetting that? It's Aksha, right? He didn't actually attack that much, but what he did was he, he didn't allow the pressure to build up at one end so that Ashwin or Aksha had to attack at the other end, right? There are, there are other things that you, you know, you're going to be able to do. Now, it's very possible that Harmison and Batty are, are, are wrong just because maybe that's all Blundell can do in these conditions. Right, maybe all he can do is hang in in these conditions. And the way he batted, um, that, I mean, they were also quite harsh on on that technique that he had. Um, he's basically getting into himself into a position where I don't know how he can score. Right, it's like it, there's no there's no way for him to be able to do anything else. And if you look at the two ways he was dismissed in this test, one was off. Eventually, a ball was going to keep low, and he faced ninety three balls and not made any runs everyone knew that and he had put no pressure back on the bowlers and they were just able to put the ball in the right spot until eventually one ran along the ground. And in the second innings, he just had a bit of bad luck. The ball came off the middle of the bat. If this is what we don't know at the moment, and I can't really answer your question correctly, is if he just can't do this. And I think we have to be really, you know, quite realistic. I don't know how much cricket he's played in Asia, actually. I might have to look that up. But um, that was his first test match in Asia, right? And he's not... He's obviously got a flawed technique, I think, towards spin. Um, as far as scoring off it anyway, defensive, it was fine. I don't know what he was doing with that back leg at times, but, you know, he's got his own sort of method there. Um, but we, we do have to be realistic. It's just possible he, he wasn't stuck because he was trying to score slow um, and he was just stuck because he couldn't. That's the difference. We know that Pajara and Sibley and Brathwaite um, – it's got to be some others. I'm thinking uh, Renshaw, right? We know that that's not their situation, right? They have decided that that is going to be the case, right? We're not quite sure with Blundell yet, just because this is the first time we've seen him play spin in Asia. It's very possible. I think he's made a hundred at home and a hundred in Australia that he's just not very good at facing spin in those conditions or, or used to it. And if that's the case, it's, it's hard to be too harsh on him. Um, I think, I think what Harmison and Batty were really trying to say is that, India, it felt like New Zealand were going nowhere for a long period there, um, which meant that they weren't putting any pressure back on on India, which is if you have a look. So Latham, my guess is that Latham's strike rate was about 30 or 31, right? Neither Harmison or Batty ever had a problem with that strike rate, right? Because he, he didn't allow himself to get bowled to for too long and he kept looking for runs. Blundell allowed himself to get bowled to, and he wasn't looking for runs. Now, if that is his method of playing spin in Asia, well, good luck. because You'll have to be like Pajara in the West, right, at that point. You have to be absolutely brilliant at that method. Maybe it works for him. The problem is, though, it, you can tire out seam bowlers. You, it's much harder to tire out spin bowlers, so it's not as an ideal method. But I don't think we know enough about Blundell at the moment. But it was, I think Blundell, I think a lot of the criticism came to him 
just because of the way he played as well. He, you know, uh, he looked so out of his depth at times in that particular innings. But, you know, back in the team, uh, a lot of pressure on him. It's his job full time now. You know, all those things. I, I, I'm not going to judge him too harshly, but I don't think Tom Blundell sitting back going, that's my ideal. That's the innings I dreamt of playing in, in, um, in Asia. Look at him. He had the collar up, man. He had the black cap on. He was batting. He had like Ricky Ponting and Michael Clark's, you know, um, a style of footwork at times, right? It was oh, it was all it was all happening for him, and then the man couldn't hit the ball off the square. No one dreams of that, do they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. It was just uh, like he was playing for a draw from uh, and blocking out the ball from Dead Sea itself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think it was that. I think they lost wickets and he couldn't find a way to score. Would be my guess. Let's have a look at him in the in the second test. Be really interesting because New Zealand almost need all their batters to pick up the slack for the fact that they don't really have a frontline Asian spinner. And so, you know, he needs to make runs in Asia. He doesn't need to average 45 or 50. He probably needs to average 25 or 30 when he's playing in Asia at least um, to back up the other guys, um, unless Kyle Jameson continues to bat the way that he has. And maybe it doesn't matter as much. But, you know, they can't put Colin de Grandhomme in in this situation, right? They're probably not going to be able to play him um, in Asia that often. Uh, so... It, you know, they need Blondell to be able to find a way to score. He doesn't, I don't care if he has a strike rate of whatever it was, what was it, 16 or 17 in the first innings? That's fine. If he averages 30 doing it, good luck to him if he can do that. Um, but at the moment, I think he has to find a way to score to keep the pressure off himself. So what, what by score, I just mean not be on strike. To, you, you basically, Latham and Will Young played Ashwin, Jadeja and Akshar perfectly because it didn't allow them to bowl six balls in a row to them. And that's what you have to do to the best bowlers in the world, whether it's seam or spin, um, unless you have an airtight defense like Bajara, right? If you don't have that airtight defense, it's not going to work because the best bowlers in the world will get you out. That's what they do. Anyway, mate, thank you very much for your question. In fact, thank you, everyone, for the questions. Oh, we went long. We went very long there. But, um, yeah, some really, really good uh, questions there. I'm covering the next um, New Zealand-India test on Talk Sports. If you want to come listen, I think you just download the app and you can listen along if you want. It's myself, Steve Harmison, Abhishek Janjanwala, and the great Neil Manthorpe. If you do want to shave your testicles, or more importantly, you want someone else to shave their testicles, you get 20% off of Manscaped by putting in our code REDINCA, all one word. This podcast is available on YouTube, on Red Inca, and obviously you can listen to us live on Spotify Greenroom. If you want to ask a question at the start of the day, you can uh, by supporting us on Patreon. If you don't like Patreon, you can find me at Jared Kimber at Buy Me A Coffee as well. Thank you to everyone. This is a really, really good chat today, and I'll talk to you again next week. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.